Hello and welcome back to This Is Our Design Sound On Sight's Hannibal podcast dedicated to Brian Fuller's series based on the characters created by Thomas Harris. I am Sean Coletti, contributing writer to Sound On Sight, and I am joined, of course, by my fabulous co-host, Kate Kolzik, TV editor at Sound On Sight. Hello, Kate. I have nothing witty to say. <laughs> well, uh, that makes me feel good because I never have anything witty to say. So it works out. Oh, actually, actually, we should probably say we're halfway through this season and um, I've not even been like plugging iTunes during these podcasts. And we actually got an iTunes rating. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, we got a five star from the user called Caravana who said was looking for a good professional Hannibal podcast and found this one. Their weekly breakdowns are great, highly recommended to Hannibal fans. So we are now highly recommended. Oh, well, I feel all sorts of fancy. Thank you so much. Greatly appreciated. We always love iTunes ratings and reviews. I know I do at the Televerse, and uh, it's wonderful to get one at Hannibal. I, I, I kind of uh, don't really remember that there are actually people listening to these things, uh, so it's always nice <laughs> to be reminded. <laughs> actually... On that note, I was kind of stalking the internet, and I came across uh, a thread on Reddit about Hannibal Podcasts, and we were mentioned in that. And there was a specifically entertaining part where the user said, the the best Hannibal podcast I've heard is Sound on Sites. This is our design. The female host is really thoughtful and engaging, but the guy is very matter-of-fact and dry. He makes good <laughs> points, though. <laughs> well, there you go. So that, that was fantastic. Yeah, that's about as good as praise as any. Um, this week we're going to be talking about Season 2, Episode 7, Yakimono, directed by Michael Reimer, written by Steve Lightfoot and Brian Fuller. And joining us from the AV Club is Zach Landlin. Hello, Zach, and welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you very much for having me. Absolutely. All right, so in the final minutes of this episode, Will says to Hannibal, I have to deal with you and my feelings about you. And shortly after, Hannibal says, the friendship that we had is over. Yet early on in the episode, Will says that Hannibal didn't just kill him because he believes he wants to be Will's friend still. Zach, how does this relationship progress, and what is it that Hannibal wants from Will at this point? Well, I think I think Hannibal um, I think Hannibal views Will as one of the rare people, maybe maybe the only people. I think the only other person we've ever seen him have even a remotely close to honest relationship with, who isn't someone he's about to kill, was uh, was Bedelia. And even Bedelia, he was willing to bump off if it, when it became dangerous. I, th- I feel like Will represents for Hannibal kind of um, a soulmate. And I don't – I hesitate. I don't think it's a romantic. It's certainly not a sexual thing. But I think there's this sense that because of Will's empathy, because of his ability to understand how serial killers think for – like his ability to put himself in the minds of other people, Hannibal feels like – they portray it as if Hannibal Hannibal looks at Will as somebody who could actually understand him, um, because friendships usually the the closest friendships we have, like the ones that, that tend to be the most uh, impactful and the ones we're, we're willing to defend for the longest, are the ones where we, we we are with somebody who we feels like sees us for who we really are and and care and values that. And I think I don't think Hannibal is foolish enough to think Will is going to like you know oh my god you're a serial killer that's so cool. Um, <laughs> But I do think Hannibal feels like Will is one of the few people because of the way he perceives the world and because of the way he feels everything so vividly that Will is one of the few people who could remotely understand how Hannibal because, – because Hannibal is a very sensual character, um, not necessarily in like a sexual term, which is why it was so weird when he and Alana started knocking boots. Hann- but Hannibal, like the, the food he eats, the art he he like takes in, he, even the, the murders he commits, he's very much about – 
physical sensation about the beauty and and like just the 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 feel of life and here finally is this person even though will perceives like it seems like like life sometimes overwhelms him in a very horrifying way here is someone who can finally at least on one level feel things as intensely as hannibal does it's just that will uses that feeling to increase his empathy whereas with hannibal there is no empathy i i feel like that the friendship between them, there's a connection between them that it's, you know, obviously it needs, it be, needs to exist for the show to go on. But it's also something that I don't think is necessarily going to be broken uh, just by Will pointing a gun at Hannibal. I think I think Will hates Hannibal now, but hatred is always a component from a very strong connection. Um, and I think one of the things that's going to be interesting going forward is seeing how Hannibal both succumbs to the fact that Will very clearly wants to stay in touch. And that's something that Hannibal wants. But Hannibal's strong survival instinct, those two instincts are going to be very combative in terms of like he wants Will around because Will makes his life more interesting. But he can't have Will around for much longer because Will is going to put him in. But Will is trying to put him in a position where he's going to be destroyed. I think I have a hard time reconciling that um, survival instinct with the fact that Hannibal must know to some extent that he can't really keep this up forever. And so this idea of pure empathy and how that relates to their friendship, quote unquote, is really interesting. And and just based on that, Kate, do you think that this respect almost that he has for Will uh, might suggest that if Hannibal were to get caught, that he would want Will to be the one in some kind of twisted way? Well, I do think uh, that element is there. However, I, I wouldn't... I wouldn't ascribe uh, an awareness of his, like a ticking clock to Hannibal yet, because I do think he is egocentric enough to think that, no, he's going to be able to just keep doing this forever or as long as he wants. I don't think that he has a sense that he, that the the noose is tightening in or that it, that's the thing that could happen because he is so, uh, he's so confident and so assured of his, of his, supremacy over everybody else except maybe will and uh certainly if someone's gonna take him down he he wouldn't want to be taken down by somebody he didn't respect so that that makes sense to me and and i think with hannibal and will i've been thinking about this with television quite a bit recently i i don't even think it's necessarily friendship i think that this is the closest hannibal comes to love i think he loves will and I think uh, as I think a lot of times in American television and in American society, we're not very comfortable with love if it's not in a romantic context, uh, if it's not, you know, our forever couple that we want to see get together. And I've been pondering this because uh, there have been a couple different things that have popped up, different relationships that have been popped up where it's a very strong, incredibly powerful emotional bond. But just describing it as, oh, they want to get to get they're going to get them together or they want to get married or you know have lots and lots of sex or something like that that doesn't really fit with it and i've been thinking about this with parenthood and i've been thinking about this with elementary and some other shows as well and and for me that is what this comes down to with with hannibal and will that in some way as much as hannibal can love someone he loves will or is it very the very least obsessed with him what do you guys think about that that's really interesting, and I think that it relates to – I don't know. I, I guess we're going to get into like semi-philosophical territory for just a moment, and that's fine. Um, but like my personal views towards – or personal feelings towards life and, and views about it 
it's kind of like the, the endless struggle to relieve loneliness. And I think that can tie into what you're saying about the love in this case. And, and you mentioned also elementary. And so characters like, like Sherlock in that and Hannibal in this often feel a intense loneliness just based on the kind of people that they are. And the minute that they find somebody who can appease that in some way, I think would probably elicit some kind of feeling that relates to love or at least like somewhat similar, I, I guess. What do you think, Zach? I have a hard time believing that Hannibal can really feel love the way we'd understand it. I, I feel like the character is, is there's a bit that Will says it's actually a quote, I think, from Red Dragon about how he thinks of, of Hannibal as uh, the, the Chesapeake Ripper. He doesn't know he's referring to Hannibal at the time, uh, but he thinks of that Chesapeake Ripper as, as some sick, uh, twisted, broken thing. And I feel like that's kind of important for the show to keep that in mind because it is such amazing, like so incredible, all these things Hannibal accomplishes. But at heart, he is not a role model. and He's certainly not someone that you should be respecting or wanting. He, he isn't the, the character who's most successful in the show. He's like fundamentally broken in some really horrifying ways. And I think that there's this because I think I feel like love has a selfless quality to it ideally which i don't think hannibal is capable of um he his manipulations of will are pretty obviously the work of someone who doesn't really respect someone else's choices or or value of, of their self he he thinks he did it because he was he did it both because he thought it would help will but mostly because he just wanted to see what would happen um there's something very lizard like about the character which it's it's fascinating to watch because i feel like it allows the show a certain leeway because it means that Will is in a sense protected from Hannibal, but it also means that that protection only goes so far. I feel like if it came down to it, if Will actually did decide, like when Will finally does turn the tables and come after him or finally finds a way to pursue him, I don't think Hannibal is just going to say, all right, you got me, take me away. I, I think he'd be more than willing to kill to protect himself, which is what, um, it's kind of fascinating to watch that balance between he's curious and Will has made him more curious than than probably anybody he's ever meet, met. And it's also like it eventually parallel with his relationship with Clary Starling. But um, it, there's also a line where it's like, you know, it's like ideally if you love someone, you're supposed to be willing to sacrifice yourself with them for, to, to protect them or to give them what they want. You're you put their needs ahead of your own because that's what love is. Whereas in this case, Hannibal, it's a very selfish feeling if it, and it's we can call it love, but it's not. It's certainly not a positive thing. <laughs> no, I, I agree with everything you just said. And yet that's the close. I think that's the closest Hannibal has to something like that. So I, I absolutely agree. He would kill Will rather than get caught. But yeah, he has this tie to him that he does. I, I don't even know if Hannibal understands it. Yeah, I, I think I would agree with that idea of the selflessness being a component to love. But then at the same time, I wonder if Hannibal wouldn't like to have that capacity it's just that he doesn't right now and instead all he can think to do is try to impress will in these really well, grandiose and roundabout ways it's sort of like that I, I remember reading this psychological study um that like looks at all of the major characters or villains in comics they this like wizard magazine interviewed a psychiatrist it was mostly silly but the person talked about the joker and he said that the thing about the joker is that the joker ever even had a moment of sanity he would kill himself and I feel like it, Hannibal is at a point now where if he even had like a moment of realizing what he'd done or had any empathy, any real empathy whatsoever, he would just instantly like kill himself. Like he would not be able to survive. 
um, the character can only exist in this world where he does not actually view other people as real or even or like or as beings worthy of his respect or as anything but like just people that he can just do whatever he wants with. Will does have the capacity to view people as real, and yet he's in a position in this episode, and, and just want to stick just a little bit longer on this relationship, where he has a gun to Hannibal's head, and Hannibal asks him, don't you want to know how this ends? And g- given that Will's justification for going after him via the orderly um, was because it, it would have done more good overall than not, why does he not pull the trigger in this moment? Because that makes him a killer. And he was willing to have a degree of separation with the orderly, especially because he knew the orderly was a psycho already. Uh, but he's not willing to, to do it now. And I think also at the time, you got to keep in mind, he was freshly smarting from the death uh, of Beverly. And he's had a little bit more time to process that at this point. But that's what I would say. It's just he's this is more the will we know from from previous uh, where he's not someone who can kill Gotcha. Uh, all right. So Will says when he's talking to Jack at the crime scene, catch a fish and it gets away. It's a lot harder to catch a second time. Zach, how do you think Will can catch Hannibal? Oh, I don't know. if you, Did you guys read the, the walkthrough um, that the AV Club does with Brian Fuller? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, he talks about that. He mentions briefly the idea of seduction, that now that they're switching to the next step, which is that Will needs to seduce Hannibal in the same way that Hannibal seduced Will. And I, I like that idea a lot. I think it's a little bit in a way it's a little intellectual, intellectualized and it, it'll be very. But I'm, I'm really interested to see what they do with it. And I think that I think that what needs to happen for Will, I think, is he wants to, to beat Hannibal, not just like because like to just walk into his apartment and shoot him would not be to beat him. That would actually to be in a weird way to sort of become him or not as this obviously not as bad, but it would be it'd be basically be sacrificing a certain fundamental part of himself. Whereas if he can find some way to defeat Hannibal through the rule of law and if he can kind of bring him in and lure and like break down his defenses, because Hannibal is a person who is, as as Kate said, he's incredibly arrogant, but he's also has inc- also sorts of uh, reasons to sort of justify that arrogance. The show's done a really good job this season of of showing how each new kill is even more elaborate and more like there is no way anybody's going to catch me, so I'm just going to put a tree in a parking lot. I mean, that's <laughs> insane. That that's that's like that that's 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 not that's not you know simple straightforward i mean it, it feels like the first season was art almost like you know uh basic level serial killing that's just like astonishingly difficult and he quote could pull it off in a way that didn't leave any sort of trace and the only sign they found was something that led him led them in a direction that he wanted them to go so he's incredibly arrogant and there's something very tempting about someone who's that arrogant when you know that you can like to feel like you have an edge on them to feel like you can take them down. And I, and I, I, yeah, I feel like Will has to sort of show, use what he knows and use what he kind of understands what Hannibal feels towards him and use that in a way to sort of do to Hannibal, not in a literal sense, but to do to Hannibal what Hannibal did to him in the first season. I think that has to be the motivation that it's that familiar phrase or idea of death, not being punishment enough for him in this case. And, I assume that we'll get to the the point where we see him in the exact same cell that Will was, because that's kind of how this series has has done its thing. I want to move to a different topic and ask Kate if you could kind of compare Will's arc this season 
and something like Ava's in the, the Justified season that just finished and maybe explain how you can still make a character interesting even when he or she is behind bars like this. Using uh, Hannibal is the example of doing it well and, and Ava's is not doing it well. Well, I think the the big difference, if, I, if you're going to compare those two, the big difference is that everything we got with Will felt necessary and felt like steps in a, in a progression uh, of character. It felt uh, directly connected with where the show came from and where it would need to go. And it also... Uh, gave enough of a shift in all of the dynamics. Every scene we saw with Will in in the facility informed us in some way about him and about those around him. And, and that is not something that necessarily happened with Justified this season. So I, I would, that's would be my compare contrast with that. As for the arc for Will, I think, you know, he needed to, to heal and he needed to understand what he was up against. It, it feels, but when we get to the end of this episode, and Will's all dolled up for his first date with Hannibal, yeah. <laughs> because let's be honest, clearly that that's what you know. He's all you know, neat and tidy, and he's you know doesn't have the uh, he has his coat neatly folded. He's wearing a nice button-down shirt and everything. Uh, he it, it feels like. It's the this shit just got real moment for me because now it's the start of the show again. Only this time, Will doesn't have encephalitis, and he and he knows who he's up against. So I think seeing him in, it's almost like he needed to nearly lose his mind trying to process everything about Hannibal and and what he had experienced and what he knew or did not know to be true, to put him in a position where now he can truly sit across from this man and try to figure out a way to take him down. I just find it a really interesting obstacle that writers set in cases like these, because you're right, where something like Hannibal succeeds in this case by allowing its character some time for introspection and for meditation almost, well, definitely, given those those scenes in the river that we've seen with Will this season, um, other ways of going about it are just putting on lots and lots of plot which I think what happened with uh, Justified and something like Sons of Anarchy, and oftentimes that just doesn't work because the plots are so disconnected from one another with the characters who are inside and whatever's going on outside. And so all of these personal struggles that Will was going through for the first half of this season impacted everything else that was happening, or at least related to it in a, in a really significant and heavy way. And so I think that, that that's the difference for me. And another big thing, if you're going to compare those two arcs, is that we had Will put into you know, into lockup, into the, the asylum here, the Institute for the Criminally Insane or whatever, and we met one new character, whereas we had Ava put into a prison and introduced to a whole host of new characters that, you know, then they had to try to flesh out the, those worlds and get us to that world and get us to know those characters and all that, where, you know, here Will is arrested and the only new person we meet is that orderly. When they, they need somebody for him to talk to, so they bring back Abel Gideon, who was not quite dead, very dead this week. But um, I think that's another important contrast, too. Yeah, I didn't want to get too deep into another show, but I thought it's an interesting thing in terms of looking at the story here. Um, Zach, throughout this episode, Will keeps reminding not just the characters, but I think also us as the audience, to not believe what we see at face value all the time. And I guess... What's more disturbing in this case, that Hannibal was actually able to break down Miriam that far and for that long, 
or the possibility that she might be lying and is aware who Hannibal is. Well, again, uh, like, like just to, like, to look at that, the, the Brian Fuller interview, he does say that she's not actually working for him or anything like that. It's not some sort of seduction technique. Um, I, I would say it would be if that was a possibility that she knew it was Hannibal. Um, but I do feel like the episode did a pretty good job of selling the idea that, that cause there, you couldn't, I mean, just her reaction near the end, um, of that, like just complete seizing up like total terror that he, that, and when she heard Chilton talking, um, it, it would be hard to fake that. And that, I mean, that is really horrifying that you have this person, I mean, she's still alive and she's hopefully going to be able to go on and have like an actual life now, which is really surprising um but it is um, like hannibal we really need to see at some point in the season that hannibal can be fallible because so far he has not been ha- fallible um so far everything he has done has happened because he wanted it to happen like at least even like beverly showing up that was something that he could easily deal with and and they they miriam is just another another sort of tool that he could use to distract whenever he felt something was getting too close. It's like he has these, all these things set up. Um, and it, so far it's worked, but it's really nice to know that at some point he will get caught because if this was like a series where you didn't know for sure that was going to happen, there would always be that concern that they would just keep making him more and more like, I don't know, James Spader on the blacklist or something, just so much smarter than everybody else. So yeah, I, I feel like the Miriam stuff, I, I, I like, I feel like they walked a nice line between being like kind of being kind of a relief that she was still alive. And it was like one of those ex- unexpected moments of happiness in a show that doesn't always have those um, other than, you know, Will hanging out with his dogs, but they also managed to make it in a way that helped Hannibal and was unsettling um, the, because it, it makes sense. Like if he had her for that long, he obviously, because he, he's so good at what he does that he would not have let her see his face and he would have found some way to, erase or wipe out the memory that she had of their first encounter and that is very unsettling it's it's it kind of feeds into the kind of one of the things that the episode talks about at various points with the the sort of i forget what they called it but the like psychotherapy the recursive or or something where they uh psychic leading where they could like force someone to think a certain way um and that's been a major factor on the show and it's a very uncomfortable and unpleasant thought the extent of it yeah is unbelievably unsettling and again as Hannibal usually does the character uh he's having fun with it like he leaves sketches out there those portraits to remind us that that was the thing that allowed her to make the connection initially and she's not going to remember it and that's kind of just a part of his twisted game which is really disturbing and lots of fun I guess but Kate I wanted to ask about well Zach mentioned the idea that uh, that Hannibal is clearly just vastly more intelligent than most of the people in this series and I wanted to uh, ask about Jack and the FBI because last week we got Abel kind of pointing Jack in the direction of Chilton and this week Hannibal sets Chilton up and I wanted to know if you consider Jack and the rest of the FBI, I guess, another one of the the slightly less intelligent police forces that we sometimes see in TV series, or if this is really just a credit to how Hannibal um, is so good at his job. No, I'm I'm going to give this one to to Hannibal. Uh, that the incredible stupidity of, or the convenient stupidity, I should say, of police departments uh, and shows like this does rankle it is a pet peeve of mine i will say but but for this i mean i mean we saw miriam's reaction and we there's the evidence that they're presented obviously we know it's cherry picked but but it it is so beyond comprehension 
like the just the the fact that like Zach said that he's like let's put a tree in the middle you know like the the extent that Hannibal goes to with these different crime scenes it, it's it's ridiculous and so to criticize the police for not seeing through a, a partial smudge and realizing that the the, the the partial smudge fingerprint was way too obvious of a clue. So Hannibal put it there so they would think it was the Chesapeake Ripper's fake clue because the real, you know, like, I, I can't criticize them for not seeing through that. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. The only moment that maybe got my attention was when Jack's kind of verbalizing all of this and he's like, well, wait a second, Chilton fits the profile of the Chesapeake Ripper. And I think that was the moment where I was like, well, this, this is kind of dumb, but, uh, but otherwise, yeah, the details are just way too uh, thought out by Hannibal for it to be anything more than him just being that intelligent and powerful in, in terms of doing what he does. And like Zach, like you said, the fact that we know that Jack will figure it out definitively based on, you know, with that, I keep going back to it almost every week, that amazing badass fight scene <laughs> at the start of the season, that really does help. Because it's like, we know he, he's, he, he knows in his gut that some, that his gut trusts Will and thinks that Hannibal is the guilty party, even if his brain doesn't know that's what his gut is telling him. Uh, and we know he will get there. So I think we're willing to give him a lot more leeway. I was wondering about that scene, actually, when I was watching this episode, because the thought crossed my mind that maybe that's not Jack going there to bust Hannibal. Maybe he's reached a point where he has absolutely no doubt whatsoever, but is just missing that hard evidence. And he's just kind of considering everything that's been done to Miriam. And his only way of, of getting Hannibal, I guess, is just going for his life. So I was thinking, considering that uh, the events of Red Dragon aren't supposed to happen until season four, and that would give us another season before that, that Hannibal still might not be caught yet. I, I don't know. I didn't realize it was season four. I thought it, for some reason I thought it was season three. That does, You're right. That does that does change things. It, that like, that would mean next season could be the hunt for Hannibal, which would be interesting. That would, that would be like a whole different show, though, wouldn't it be? Because they'd have to be looking for him and he'd be in hiding, which would kind of be a weird dynamic. It would be yeah. very challenging, but... The notion of of Hannibal being out of his element, that's got to be a lot of fun for just thinking about the, the options as a as a writer. You know, I, I can imagine Brian Fuller sort of, you know, burnsing his fingers and cackling a bit at the notion of, oh, how, how much can we stretch out having to actually watch Hannibal not in control after seeing him in control for two seasons? So maybe... That'd be really interesting. And obviously Fuller has a little bit of fun with some of those decisions in this episode. And in the walkthrough that, that's been mentioned already, he he addresses the issue of um, of Chilton getting shot, saying that, you know, Serpico survived a bullet to the face. So, again, I, I subscribe to the idea that unless we see the corpse and the person is dead, that's there's still fair game. But let's talk about Chilton, at least. And, and Zach, can, can you break down... Uh, can you break down that sequence at his house? Like any part of it, the design of the house, him finding Gideon, him running into Hannibal or him waking up after being drugged. Oh God. Uh, well, I like the fact that his house was very spare. It was clearly the house of someone like children who had designed it to look a certain way, but it didn't quite, it wasn't, it didn't have the sort of elegance of Hannibal's place. It was this children always just seems like a kind of a slightly shoddy copy of Hannibal. 
um, which is one of the reasons why it's it, it, it makes sense that Hannibal would try and frame him. I'm um, like, I, I've been noticing lately that he wears the same kinds of suits. But yeah, that whole sequence was just nightmarish. And it was so well constructed in terms of Chilton coming home. And and it just the bit I oh I think my favorite point was the part where 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 Chilton figures it out and he's running and he trips and then Hannibal is there in his like special you know human condom suit and he he, he grabs Chilton he's like you'll have no choice but to run and he like walks towards the door like oh those FBI guys are dead oh dear no I, I thought though I, I I generally speaking I've been amazed at how the show has handled Chilton because that is not a character I that I would have ever thought it would be possible for me to like and he is easily one of my favorite characters on the show now the the actor uh, Raul Raul Esparza he is just fantastic and he adds this level of like sort of self awareness and. He doesn't make the character more intelligent, but he makes him sort of a perfect comic foil in this world of very serious men and women doing very serious things. Like, like he's just smart enough to realize he is totally screwed, um, which is just so entertaining to watch. But yeah, no, the the bit that like like the fact that once again it has Hannibal basically being like the devil because he is able to set up all this stuff in Chilton's house. But no, it's a very and like he he passes out and then he comes to and he sees all see like the heart. Oh god, the FBI agents like split. Um, it yeah no, it's, and I just love the bit where he's like he immediately goes to Will because Will is the only person he can trust, and then he tries to run and it's just it the whole thing is. I think my favorite, I think, and I love the way it builds to that last, the interrogation scene. And I, I agree. I don't think he's dead. Um, it'd be really weird for the show. It'd be kind of silly for the show to kill him off that way. This at this point, um, I'd like how just kind of exhausted and basically like, look, you don't, yeah, it's just, you don't even understand it's, we're all screwed. He actually sounded a bit like, uh, Gideon, but like, uh, how Eddie Gizzard sounded when he came back this season once, cause like there's this shift of once you realize what Hannibal is, it's just this complete, Every nothing I can do, or <laughs> I, I am just doomed. Um, but yeah, no, it was a it was a fantastic sequence. I, I wrote down that piece of dialogue actually because it stood out when he's talking to Alana and he mm. says, "Those are just words coming out of your mouth. No weight to them. No consideration. They may be true." And yeah, that absolutely has echoes of, of both Gideon and Will when he was first incarcerated. I think it's just that exhaustion of people not seeing what's right in front of them, despite the fact that well, Hannibal's done a good job of covering his tracks. Uh, one of my favorite parts from the the children's sequence is when he trips and looks up and sees Hannibal, and Hannibal just says, hello, Frederick. It's just, <laughs> Moss Miggleson's delivery and is just fantastic. Uh, Kate, was there anything else from that sequence that you wanted to, to talk about? Uh, well, I, I feel like um, you just threw up an ear or whatever. I feel like that might be one of the line deliveries I'm remembering at the end of the year, because it was so... <laughs> delightful oh my god it was so good the thing with Chilton this season for me is he feels like a direct response to uh, the criticism of the show last season for its need for more humor uh, the, he's they've really they've amped up the Chilton this half of the season and you know they gave Abel Gideon some uh and I mean we have Eddie Izzard he's gonna bring humor as well but but especially with Chilton because one once Chilton gets on team will he is our audience surrogate because it's hard for us to really identify with will so much because he's so angsty and uh and he's always with the brooding and the visions and everything um but but not only is chilton funny uh and does he know what's going on but uh he he will actually say stuff like i'm just glad i can't eat meat which is you know that that's the 
where the audience would be in the, in that uh, situation. So he's been a real asset to the show. Rose Esparza has been amazing in the role, and I'm really gonna miss him. Uh, but but by the time he's in that sl slumped down in that chair, uh, you're right, Zach. He's he feels like a different character, and if he does come back. Uh, I'm sure it'll be a very different performance. And so he's not, he can't fill that role anymore. So it makes sense for him to either get some time off or to not be as necessary in the season right now after that point. As for the scene itself, I, I'm so glad that you mentioned his suit, Zach, because I <laughs> love it. I talked about it last week a little bit, um, or maybe it was the week before, but I was, I was watching this episode with my sister and he comes down the stairs and he's like twirling his cane or whatever. I feel like that set was designed to match his blazer because the white walls just made that blazer pop in just the right way. It was so wonderful. And then to, to, to underscore that, I mean, I'm getting into Kate's classical corn a little bit here, but to underscore that with this clarinet sort of jazzy feel, uh, it was so interesting and something that I don't remember the show doing very much at all before this episode. And so like, there were all these nice little touches in there, but the thing I just go back to with this character more than anything all season is that he's been hilarious, a much needed dose of comedy. The the three other top chilling quotes for me that we haven't mentioned yet. May I use your shower, please? <laughs> uh, I have to leave the country. I am leaving the country. And probably my favorite one was, I would like to remain not dead for the foreseeable future. Yeah. <laughs> We sang the praises of Raul Esparza last week, but he definitely deserves it again this week. I actually thought that whole chase sequence with Jack was rather comedic as well. It begins with, with Lawrence Fishburne just shouting out, Chilton! And that kind of like got it off to a little bit of an absurd start. And just the whole situation in and of itself to me was kind of absurd. So it was maybe unintentional comedy, but it was entertaining for me nonetheless. Well, and compare it to, you know, Jack is chasing the fake Chesapeake Ripper. Compare it to when we saw him engaging the actual Chesapeake Ripper at the start of the season. I, I, I feel like, I don't know if there's an intentional parallel there, but I see one. And I, I, I'm i with you on that. Uh, I want to move on just a little bit to Alana, who tells Will that his actions challenged her whole foundation of assumptions about the way he is uh, or the way that she thinks he is. Zach, is there a chance of these two reconciling at all? And do you think that Alana is still a potential murder victim while she's so upset with Will in this way? Oh, I don't know. I don't think she's a potential victim at this point. I think that, that at the very least, she'd have to figure out what's going on. And there would need to be it'd be kind of weird if they were to actually if they were to have her figure it out and then have Hannibal kill her before she could have any contact with Will. It would feel kind of like we've done that before we don't need to go down that route again i the character the character alana bloom you know is named after is a gender swap of alan bloom who actually appears fairly prominently in red dragon so that doesn't necessarily mean she's safe but i would say that she's probably off the table i actually like that scene between her and will a lot um i have not been a huge fan of all the stuff they've been doing with alana this season i feel like they're still trying to try, figure out how to place her and she's sort of getting stuck in the the sort of woman who just loves someone like that's her kind of role um the the bit with her sleeping with hannibal i could understand kind of where they are going with that from a character perspective i just wasn't really sure it, it was justifiable in the narrative this week i liked the fact 
it makes much more sense to me that she would be almost offended, that she would be offended by what Will had done. That there would be like this very deep hurt in that she had trusted him because she thought he was this person. And then he would go and do this thing, which to her seems to just utterly destroy her conception. It, it does. The problem with it is it makes her look stupid uh, in a way that Jack doesn't look stupid. Um, because Alana looks like she has all these reasons to, to sort of not necessarily trust Hannibal. Like Will is someone she trusted and cared about. And Will was locked away for a while. So Will clearly has some stuff going on in his head. And for her to be this upset with him is both something I think is kind of, is a more interesting emotion to play than her just getting into bed with Hannibal. But at the same time, it sort of renders her into a, into a character who's just kind of, who, who is sort of a step or few. Cause even Jack, I mean, there's this there's a moment like that moment when Jack finally catches hold of Chilton. I I feel like there's part of Jack that, that at least suspects that Will's right. And with Alana, if there is that part, it could be motivating her to be like she could be basically desperately just shutting it down because she refuses to accept it. But it just makes her look a little too dumb in a, for a character who has not been stupid in the past. Uh, and it's kind of frustrating. Um, I really hope they have some sort of end game plan for this that'll justify all this stuff because right now it feels like they've done stuff to her character mainly because they weren't quite sure what else to do with her and they they kind of plugged her in because okay we can have her sleep with him and that'll be this thing that we'll fight about it just seems like i don't have enough re i didn't have a strong enough sense of her connection to hannibal at the start of the season to justify the amount of emotional investment she's put in, into him over the course of the season because of Will. I can get the fact that she feels betrayed by Will or feels upset. I get that as a character emotion. That's a smart play. It, it makes it, you know, there needs to be conflict there. But what I don't get is why she would turn to Hannibal because I don't think the show did a good enough job. It showed a couple scenes of them between them in the first season that were very nice, but I don't think the show did a good enough job of establishing that relationship in order to give, in order to sort of found, give a foundation to her frustration and anger in this episode that, that doesn't make her look like she's kind of, you know, being sort of almost written as a little bit slow. Sure. And I specifically wanted to uh, point to the performances in that scene between Will and Alana. And I thought that both Hugh Dancy and Caroline Davernis were really, really good. Mm, uh, yes. Hugh, Hugh Dancy was kind of like making sure that it, it appeared that Will was having difficult time maintaining eye contact. So he kept turning his face away, which was a really nice touch. And just the script as well from Steve Liefeld and Brian Fuller, the way that they, they use each other's names to kind of emphasize their frustration. And those are, I think, just really minor touches, but but to me, add a lot in terms of communicating how they're feeling. Um, Kate, did you want to weigh in on anything Alana-related before we move on? Well, I, that scene, I also really enjoyed it, uh, not only for the return of of the dogs, the happy reunion of Will mm. with his dogs. Plus applesauce, right? Plus applesauce. I was thinking of Ricky D, our general editor at Sound on Sight, uh, general editor who is uh, very much a, a fan of the dog. So I was glad that we got to that they showed us that the cinematography in that scene with the with the orange sky against the bluish green sort of snow or like the all the whites being tinted with green was just gorgeous. Um, but for me, that scene comes down to: is he safe from me or for you? And I thought that was such a wonderful line, very well delivered. And I and that that tells me so much about that scene. And also it, it I love that they don't that they have Will figure basically in that line he's figuring out that she's with Hannibal to some extent. And that they don't have him 
macho posture or seemingly get upset. Like he understands and it makes sense for him because he is this, emp- you know, basically an empath, the closest the show comes to having an empath. So he understands completely why she would react to all of this and run off to Hannibal because, you know, he, she, he understands where she's coming from, even if he also understands who Hannibal is in a way that she can't. But yeah, I really appreciated that because it gave us this little bit of doubt from her, even if it's unconscious doubt. And it also tied Will in, you know, with, with this understanding of other people that he always has, but pretty much only gets to demonstrate in relation to serial killers on this show. So it's nice to see him demonstrate that in relation to Alana here. Yeah, just Will warning her rather than expressing any kind of jealousy. Again, like you said, was a really nice touch. Uh, we'll move on to our two recurring segments for the podcast, though. And you already mentioned it a little bit earlier, Kate, but we'll start with Kate's classical corner. What can you tell us about the scoring in Yakimono? I had so much fun with the scoring. Not as much as last week, of course. Yeah, you know, whenever they want to bring back that harpsichord, I'm all for it, especially if we get some more original compositions. But I, I only have a few things this week. I already mentioned the scoring of the clarinet. I thought that was really interesting. We get it twice in the episode. First, and both times correspond to Chilton. I would need to go back and watch some of his earlier scenes to know if that is a newer choice for the scoring, if that's just this episode or if that's something they've been doing that I hadn't picked up on. If you do know, and uh, if you've been listening for that, let me know at the Televerse on Twitter. I would love to to get a better sense of that choice. But even just the choice of the clarinet, uh, the clarinet only joined symphonic orchestration with Beethoven. Uh, it, It wasn't used in that context beforehand, and so it is a much more comparatively modern instrument for for compared to the other sort of string and classical kind of stuff they've been doing romantic and classical at least um obviously there's been a lot of more modern stuff as well we get that this week with some of the percussion choices some of the other things that they do but that immediately when i hear clarinet i go to jazz and so the tonalities in the jazz world are very different than in the classical world um and then as people people always say about jazz is think about the space between the notes think about the time you know the, the notes that are not chosen as opposed to just the notes that are chosen um but that gave the character tying it with Chilton gave it a very different feel than what uh we last saw of course we also get in this the other bit of scoring that that stuck out to me was in the uh the scene with with Hannibal having his glass of wine that gets cut short that's a uh, excerpt from one of the Bach cello suites of course the last time we saw Hannibal by himself was when he was eating Beverly uh and and he was accompanied by uh, solo cello then as well with the tonalities of that and the, some of the, 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 that original scoring for when he was eating Beverly was, uh, at least to me, was similar. The melody or the, the, the leaps and the structure of it was similar to some of the scoring we got for Chilton, but that difference between cello and uh, clarinet is, 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 you know, it's all the difference in the world. Here he's back to solo cello with Hannibal, but he's not eating one of our friends, uh, and he's uh, enjoying a glass of wine. And so it's it's Bach. It's not an original, more atonal composition. Also, apparently, one of my favorite pieces ever, the Bach uh, Partita Number Two for violin. One of the movements from that, the Giga, is in an earlier scene, but I missed it, and I I don't know how I did so. Uh, I figured I'd mention that. And when Miriam mentions chamber music, 
Um, I, I'm hoping we get more with that just because I love chamber music. We're talking about like, you know, trios, quartets, quintets, you know, small ensemble music, which is a very different thing than either solo or large works. And so if, if they want to start playing with some string quartets, I would be very, a very happy Kate. So uh, we'll see if there's more of that down the line. But that's uh, that's about it. Uh, that's about all I have for this week. Other than I also I particularly loved the scoring in the scene when they uh, when Will is visualizing the tree and all of that uh, it, it in some way was like indicative to me of like a orchestral sprechstimme or something the the violin sorry i'm getting hyper technical uh it's like a speech singing thing technique um anyway so i i particularly like the scoring in that scene as well did you guys have particular scenes where the music stood out to you or was was uh enjoyable in some context <laughs> <laughs> I, I like that there were sounds and they were creepy. Oh my god! No, I like that. I did like there was a bit when uh, Chilton was being chased. I like it's like kind of the same thing they've been doing, but that sort of percussive, like very not really sort of. It's almost more sound effects than music. But wow, Kate! Wow, I, yeah, damn. No, this, this is every week. It's amazing. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> but the 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 nice thing about the percussion this week uh, is that it it felt less on the nose. Than in the episode with Beverly, it was it was um, in the episode where they found Beverly, it was in your face. It was very aggressive. It was louder than it had ever been, and it was it was very it was felt confrontational. Whereas in here, we had the same idea, but it wasn't anywhere near as as aggressive. I just keep going back to that that word. There was more rolls on on symbols and stuff, and less just in your face attacks from the percussionists. So yeah, I, I was I, I enjoyed the I had more fun with the percussion this week than I did uh, a couple uh, with with that in that Beverly episode as much as I did enjoy it there as well. The, the little pieces of scoring that stood out to me, I obviously know nothing about the instrumentation, but it, it created somewhat of like a noir vibe or a, like a hard boiled type thing, and that that really matched the outfit that we've seen Jack in in the past couple episodes with the the fedora where he seems much more like a Raymond Chandler character, but that, that's what stood out to me. Nice. And we'll move on to the second of our recurring segments, The Devil in the Detail, which is just any little detail that, that stands out in some way in the episode. Um, I'll, I'll kick it off with that transition from the black and white shots into the color one in the present day when uh, Miriam approaches Hannibal's door, and this time she walks in with with Jack in the present day, and I thought that that was a, a really nice flourish there. Uh, Zach, any details stand out to you in this episode? Oh, gosh. I, uh, I should have taken notes. Um, well, I already said that I liked, I liked Chilton's... I think I noticed for the first time Chilton's outfit. Um, I, I, well, I guess it's like not really a detail so much, but really, uh, Miriam... Uh, Anna Chomsky, is that her, her name? I, uh, what, what? Sorry, what? Chomsky, yes? Chomsky. That's Chomsky. what I've been saying. Well, it's, it's kind of weird because she actually looks quite a bit like my sister, which is kind of unnerving. Um, but I, uh, I I thought I liked the way her performance worked in that you didn't quite realize it at first because she seemed like she was very surface-level professional, but then you gradually kind of paid attention. As, like she just kind of seemed like very tightly wound, and there was this certain edge to her that I thought – could have been comical, but I, I liked how in, intense it was and how very clearly she was someone who was not stable, but she was very invested in portraying the image of being in control and being stable. I thought that was very nicely done. Resemblances to family members absolutely count for the devil in the details segment, I will tell you. Yeah. Um, Kate, what uh, what stood out to you in this one? Well, uh, 
and and a couple things with Miriam, and I do think the that I really loved the performance from Anna Tomsky as well. And now I'm where I'm probably saying her name wrong too. I have no idea how it's actually pronounced, but um, I, I think the contrast we see—it's such a huge contrast between her fresh-faced, young, eager, go get 'em perspective uh, personality in season one and what we see here. So the they do feel like the same person, but you know, it's a, she's in a very different place. But the main thing I had with her was that uh, I, the two main things was first of all the, her perspective on the the Chesapeake Ripper that felt very X-Files to me um especially some of the different um uh, abductee sort of um imagery that they used on that show so I thought that was interesting having with the white light and everything um but then the main thing for me I love that we see a close-up of her face and she does not have perfect complexion this may seem like such a tiny thing to you guys you as a as a woman who uh, I have been blessed with, with a fortunate uh, complexion, I usually don't have to deal with significant, you know, unfortunateness on my cheeks and all that. Uh, but you never see anyone who's having a bad skin day on TV. Certainly, you don't see women, and if they are, they have like one zit that's comically large. Uh, so to see the show put her in such tight close up and not smooth out her face is so, I I was so happy about that it makes her feel so much more real and for a show that has struggled with its female characters to some extent that is that that is a you know it was an important thing that they stick the landing with Miriam in this episode and I you know just the, the attention to the little details like that and like what you were mentioning Zach goes such a long way to to making her feel so much more real than she would uh, the similar character would on a show like I don't know one of my favorite punching bags the following it's a very big punching bag <laughs> well you don't want to hit too hard there might be knives inside or something here oh god yeah <laughs> uh, the the only other thing uh that I I have that's coming to mind right now is that I was so glad to see the the lightsaber pendulum thingy be back I was like oh I missed you lightsaber <laughs> pendulum effect thingy the interesting thing about that lightsaber pendulum in this one was that uh, the first instant we see it, it's actually happening like behind Will, and we usually see it in the black screen or like from his first-person point of view. So that was unusual, I thought. Um, the other, only other two things that I wanted to mention, we, we've had a few instances in Hannibal the series so far point out his keen sense of smell, and I like that he, he picked up on Will's aftershave without having to look to see Will was in the room. And then the other one was when Will gets out and Jack comes to pick him up, um, he kind of just stops in the middle of the room in the conversation as if he doesn't want to get too close to Jack for the moment. And then Lawrence Fishburne has to kind of bridge that gap before they, they continue much further, which I don't know how purposeful that was at trying to communicate something, but it stood out. So there was that. And the uh, the aftershave thing also made me think of uh, Dr. Du Maurier as well, leaving behind the perfume. Absolutely, yeah. Um, great. All right, was there anything else that either of you wanted to mention that we haven't touched on yet in Yakamono? Well, the name means grilled. Uh, it's like a grilled course, right? I was trying to think of how that would... I guess just the interrogation. Yeah, I was trying to connect that as well, and I came up blank, but that's about as good as anything that I had thought of, so I'll go with that. 
Zach, anything? No, well, I, I guess because we really had, I, I, you know, didn't have a chance to talk. And Lawrence Fishburne doesn't get a ton to do, but I, I think he's just turning into a fantastic performance this season. And I think he's getting easy, kind of easy to overlook because the character isn't as, you know, in it like dynamic as say Will or Hannibal or even Chilton. But I think Fishburne is really holding the show together in a lot of really important ways. Uh, and I think he did quite did some great work. And I like there's a there's a moment. Actually, this is a detail thing. There was a moment right after he catches Chilton where you see Chilton's terrified face and you look back at Jack. And it could have just been that he was just like disgusted. But to me, it read almost like this guy can't be the Chesapeake Ripper. Like there was almost this moment of realization the way Fishburne played it as if like, yeah, that's oh crap. Like I, I and I really like the way he's managed to make that character who could have come across as dull or um just neg- in a negative sense or, or again dumb which you know not not again like but alana bloom like Catherine Deneuve, she's fantastic it's more the it's really all the writing but i think i think lawrence fishburne is it Catherine? Um, you called it it's Karen, i don't know anybody's uh, name i am said the Catherine worst Deneuve. critic ever <laughs> oh i know what i said i just i am the worst worst critic ever she's fantastic and and but i i just i feel like fishburne uh really in a lot of ways has been sort of the ground on which the season has kind of built up from because you have the flashier stuff and then you have him underneath and he's the guy that you need to convince the most. He's the guy who really matters because of that fight scene we saw at the beginning. It's all leading up to that. So I think he's fantastic. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more at that point. And I think I've said a couple of times so far this season that Lawrence Fishburne has had just a lot more to do, but he's done it just significantly better, which is not to say that the first season was bad or anything, but uh, Jack Crawford is a much more interesting character this season. Uh, but we'll conclude the discussion here. Kate and I will be back next week to talk about episode eight, Sue Zakanaka. Sue Zakana. Sue Zakana. Hold on, give me like three minutes to figure this out. Zakana. Sue Zakana. <laughs> I'll just list off actors' names. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We'll, we'll spend the next 10 minutes. Uh, Zach will list off actors' names and I'll try to pronounce things in Japanese. <laughs> It's terrible because I've taken Japanese, and so I should be able to do this, but uh, whatever. <laughs> uh, thank you, listeners, for tuning in. Of course, thank you again, Zach, for coming on. Where can our listeners find you online? Uh, my reviews appear regularly at the AV Club, and you can also find me at Twitter at Z-H-A-N-D-L-E-N, Z-Handlin. Perfect. And Kate, where can our listeners find you online? Well, they can find my reviews of, at Sound On Sight, and uh, right now I'm reviewing Parenthood and... Uh, and grim and looking forward to Orphan Black next starting up next weekend, uh, and then of course my other podcast is the Televerse, are uh, going out on Tuesdays t- covering the rest of of TV, and then of course the Game of Thrones podcast as well. So if you want to hear me blather on, you can check all those out at Sound on Site, or you can follow me on Twitter at the Televerse, and I I'm always up for talking TV, so drop me a line there. All of the podcasts. Uh, you can find my Hannibal reviews weekly at tvovermind.com. Otherwise, my stuff will appear on Sound on Site or on my blog, There's Nothing On.com. Um, and as a reminder for the first time, feel free to give us an iTunes rating or leave a comment. Uh, this appears in the Sound on Site TV cast and on the Televerse feed. We'd love to hear from you. Feel free to ask us some questions that we can answer next week regarding anything that we've talked about so far or whatever happens uh, in next week's episode. But that's it for this week. Thank you again for tuning in. This has been This Is Our Design.